Um, So chapter 2 from verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But we thought, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father, we pray that tonight as we think about uh, authentic ministry and authentic leadership, uh, you would have something to say to every single one of us in our church uh, family. Help us to embrace what you say. Help us to be doers of the word as well as hearers of the word. Thank you for the connections that uh, you uh, create between the different services and the message uh, you have for us. So we wait with expectation and do so in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, every letter has a reason and occasion behind it. Let me just fill in the background to this letter. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had uh, started the church in Thessalonica, and it had been an extraordinary beginning. The church had really uh, listened to their message. The gospel had been galvanized. And after a few weeks, a number of people had been converted. It really had established strongly. Not a big number, I guess, maybe just a a small number, but nonetheless a a galvanized and a strong and a real and a vibrant church. And then the opposition came with a vengeance. Really difficult time for Paul and Silas and Timothy, with the result that after as little as three weeks, possibly four weeks, they had to leave Thessalonica, smuggled out, And I guess when they were leaving, they would think, well, how on earth is the church going to survive this fledgling little church? Uh, Paul was desperate to get back to the church in the months that followed. Uh, If you've got a Bible, um, if you just flick over to um, chapter 2. I just had a panic moment thinking, do I know where 1 Thessalonians is? But thankfully, it just fell open. Okay, chapter 2, verse 17, this is Paul, uh, he's writing a letter, he's reflecting on his experience after he had to leave uh, them physically. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in person, not in heart. I mean, there's a relevant text for our time. Since we were torn away from you in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Now, there is a relevant word for our time. Interesting, it took a a, a year, 
Paul couldn't get to see them, and that's maybe a good caveat and a foot, but the desire to see people face to face is so strong. Now, he couldn't get back, and the months went on, and after a year, I think Paul was in Athens, he, he said, look, I can't, I can't stand it any longer without knowing how they are. Timothy, I want you to go back to Thessalonica and find out who they are. And Timothy sent back, and then Timothy comes back to Paul. And uh, Paul reflects on Timothy coming back, and you can imagine Timothy coming in, and Paul would be thinking, it's going to be bad news. I mean, there's no way they would have thrived and survived under pressure. And then Timothy says, Paul, you know what, they're just doing great. They're going on strong. That gospel that we brought, they've really owned it. They're preaching it. And Paul says something in the middle of his letter here, reflecting how he took that news, and he said these words, but now we live. You've made me alive to know that you are standing fast in the Lord. And then Paul picks up his pen or his quill or whatever it is, and he writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians. Now, that's the background to this. This is a kind of model church in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians is an authentic church. It's a wonderful church. It's not a great big church, it's not a great big strong church, but it's real and authentic. Um, some of you will know the program, the Antiques Roadshow. Um, there are certain channels on Freeview that you can get repeats endlessly. What's the best bit in the Antiques Roadshow? The best bit is when they tell you how much something is worth. All of you are looking at me here in the building thinking, goodness me, that's not very godly. That's the best bit, I think, anyway. The second best bit is when some expert fiddles around with the artifact, whatever it is, and they say, it's fake. Or, do you know that you possess the genuine article? The genuine, genuine article. This is what Thessalonica is. It's a genuine, genuine church. Authentic church, authentic ministry, authentic leadership. One of the things that's striking is that this church was birthed in a tough, tough environment. And they're not authentic and real. In spite of the difficulties they faced, much more likely they are authentic and real because or alongside the difficulties that they faced. There are many things about church life that we miss, and I suspect we'll miss for some time. It's difficult, it's hard. One of the things that I want to caution us against is the rhetoric that keeps saying this is terribly hard, terribly difficult. We just need to embrace it and to move forward like everybody else in our society and in fact lead the way and rebuild our communities as wisely as we can, confident that even in difficulty, and perhaps especially in difficulty, the Lord Jesus will build his church. Will show us what really, really matters. Now, tonight, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, what I've described as authentic ministry. So, authentic ministry. Now, um, one of the things that's it's really, really important, or, or a big danger, is that we think this passage which describes Paul's own ministry and Silas and Timothy when he was with them, that we think this passage is only relevant to people like um, Callum. People who are set apart 
And that's what ordination means as leaders of a church family. Now, it does, of course, refer to people like Callum and all the elders. And there was a time in Chalmers when our default would be to think it referred only to people like me, ministers or church leaders, or to Rog and Jay or Johnny Scott and Davy as those in leadership roles or training for leadership roles in churches. And one of the most important steps we um, have made as a church, one of the most important steps forward is to embrace what the Bible teaches about leadership. Churches are led by elders, all of the elders. Some of us are set apart to work full-time. Some of us are given leadership roles by the other elders. But all elders are elders, and elders corporately lead the church. Now, we have made an important step, I think, in that direction, in that biblical direction, a mindset shift reflected, for example, in the ordination promises Callum will make. They are no different from the ordination promises a full-time elder, what we would call a minister, will make. The only difference between those Callum will make and, for example, Rog J. or Sam, who were ordained into full-time roles, are promises with respect to their full-time roles. Now, that's a really important shift in our church life. And there is a way to go, but it's an important step to align what we do with what the Bible says we are to do. And it means what's described here in 1 Thessalonians 2 is as relevant to every elder in Chalmers, whether they are set apart as full-time elders or not. But these verses are relevant beyond that. And what Paul describes in these verses is his own ministry as an apostle, and that, as we said, can be applied with some caveats to those in leadership roles in churches called elders after the time of the apostles. But the marks of leadership here can be applied beyond that. Reading this letter, it is evident, if you read the whole letter, that there are many people in the church in Thessalonica whose ministry is like this, like the elders and others. This kind of leadership atmosphere spreads right throughout the church. Paul typically uses the pronoun you in the letter in the comprehensive sense of embracing the whole. So if Paul had been writing to Chalmers, he would embrace in his reflections on leadership all of the elders, whether full-time or not, slob leaders, small group leaders, the many people who lead Bible studies in small groups, those who lead children and youth work, and so on. A living church will have many people in positions of responsibility or leadership, and people being trained for these roles, whether in formal programs like MAP or through a small group leaders training weekend. And beyond that, the nature of Christian leadership is not essentially different from the life of every Christian. All Christians have responsibilities toward their fellow believers to love and serve them. All have a part to play in using the gifts God has given them all of a responsibility to speak the gospel. Now, let me just underscore this. I am not working hard to convince us that what Paul writes 
is relevant to a much larger group of people than we might first think. In order to keep your attention or to deflect the challenge away from people like me, who are in obvious leadership roles. I'm working hard to convince us that what Paul writes is relevant to many more people than we might first think, and indeed to all of us in some respects, because that's exactly what he has in mind. Now, we may well have made progress with a change of mindset. We may have the structures in place to equip people in their leadership roles, slob groups and small groups and training programs and so on and so forth, all church training weekends. But now is the time, perhaps, to listen to what the Bible says you are to do as an elder, as a small group leader, as a children's leader, as a youth leader, whatever it is, who you are to be, and as we heard this morning very helpfully and very clearly, not simply to be hearers but doers of the Word. some ways it's just obvious when you stand back and think about this. If what Paul describes here in terms of genuine leadership is in the hands of a very few in a church, that cannot be as effective as if what he describes here is seen in the lives of very many in a church. Churches where leadership is invested in a very few are for one of two reasons. One, because those in leadership will not share leadership. And two, because those who should embrace it will not. I think we're very much in the right direction as a church with respect to this. But the infrastructure is in place, the desire there is that the principal changes are there, but what does it look like? Now, you'll see on the sheet, it looks like five things. Speaking the gospel, persevering in adversity, sincerity of motive, selfless, sacrificial, tender, loving care, concern uh, for godliness. Now, that is not just for the few. If a church thinks it is for one or two, then either some people, people like me, are confusing leadership with power, or people in wider leadership roles are not willing to do what the Word of God says they are to do. Let's look at these authenticating marks. Firstly, speaking the gospel. That's like a thread, a golden thread that runs right through the verses that Becca read. It's striking how many times in these verses Paul refers to speaking the gospel of God. The end of verse 2, declaring to you the gospel of God. Verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak Verse 8, share with you. In other words, speak the gospel of God. Verse 9, proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Speak, 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 speak. It runs like a thread through these verses. Speaking the gospel of God is the mark of authentic leadership. Not any gospel, not any message, but the gospel of God. There is one gospel and only one true gospel. Now, that might immediately sound arrogant or dissonant, but it's not our gospel. It's Jesus' gospel given to his apostles. Chapter 1, verse 5, Paul refers to our gospel. In other words, the gospel the apostles preached is not arrogant. They are apostles of Jesus. Their gospel is God's gospel, and so must be our gospel. Moreover, 
we thought about this in more detail at the earlier service. It is this gospel, the gospel of God spoken, that is the only gospel, the only message on the earth that is attended by the genuine convicting power of the Holy Spirit. It is only this gospel, it is only this message on the earth that can change people's lives, save them for eternity. And what is this gospel that Christ died for our sins to save us from the wrath to come and that he calls us to live under his lordship, his authority, his word? That is the true gospel, a gospel that calls us to repentance and the obedience of faith. Now, authentic leadership, whether an elder, a small group leader, an impact leader, a Sunday club leader, a sparklers leader, now, I'm not just saying that it matters for a sparklers leader. Of course it does. Thank God that we have people leading sparklers and little stars who are, along with their parents, charged with these very formative years, who know and believe and speak the true gospel of God to these little ones you say it like that, you realize just how much it matters. Authentic leadership means being convinced that this is the gospel of God. Authentic leadership means not being ashamed of the gospel of God. Authentic leadership means guarding the gospel of God. It's like saying to a little kid in a gentle way, in a careful way, in a wise way, that something is wrong with our hearts. There's something wrong. And there's something wonderful in Jesus to fix it. Now, speaking the gospel of God is at the very center of Christian ministry and leadership right through the life of a church. Now, that is recognized tonight, later on in the service of ordination, in the preface, the bit that heads it all up. Let me read these formal words, and they matter a great deal uh, from later. In this act of ordination... So setting apart Callum to be an elder, Chalmers Church, as part of the universal church, worshiping Father, Son, and Spirit, affirms tonight anew its belief in the gospel of the sovereign grace and love of God, wherein through Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, incarnate, crucified, and risen, He freely offers to all people upon repentance and faith the forgiveness of sins, renewal by the Holy Spirit, and eternal life, and calls them to labor in the fellowship of faith for the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. And in ordaining Callum tonight, or in appointing our sparklers or little stars leader, it matters a great deal that these people are 100% convinced in that. So important. Speaking the gospel. Second, persevering in adversity. Holding to the gospel of God and speaking the gospel in other words, holding to the gospel that Christ died for our sins, holding to the gospel that the Lord Jesus calls us to live under his lordship. Holding to the gospel means a life of repentance and growth. Holding to the gospel means speaking that gospel out, warning people about the wrath to come, and that leads you into adversity. Always. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. For you know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain. 
that though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There were people in Thessalonica who were trying to discredit Paul and his ministry, saying stuff like, look at Paul. He abandoned you after three weeks. He doesn't care about you. And his gospel, the demands it makes, the style of ministry gets you into difficulty, leads to conflict, opposition. You don't need to suffer for the gospel. That's just Paul, his ministry. One of the most striking comments from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, the last words he wrote, he said to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, everyone has deserted me. It's very striking, isn't it? Everyone deserted him. Because Paul's gospel, the apostle's gospel, leads to adversity. And Paul defends himself, for you know yourself, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain. In other words, your life's changed. Suffering and adversity in ministry and leadership is not a sign that something is wrong. It is a sign of authenticity. I didn't notice I didn't say it's not a sign that something is right and if we should relish it. It's just a mark of authenticity. It's an expectation. It's a normal rhythm. It goes with a commitment to the gospel of God. If you speak the gospel of God as a leader or as a teacher of a child, a parent may not like it or appreciate it. It will wonderfully transform lives, but equally it will be opposed and rejected whether because of the claims it makes on people's lives, the Christian lifestyle, or whether it is simply dissonant in the culture we live, it will be opposed and you will be opposed. And Paul is referring to what happened to him and Silas and Philippi immediately before they came to Thessalonica. They were imprisoned, falsely accused, suffered, forced to leave Philippi. There had been great progress in Philippi and that uh, vibrant church. People converted the miraculous deliverance from prison, the conversion of the jailer, but all of it, and these are Paul's words, in the midst of much conflict. And the same thing that happened in Thessalonica, the church had been firmly established, yes, but the same description in the midst of much conflict. It is not a sign that something is wrong. It is expected and normal. Now, we are not to seek suffering and conflict and enjoy it. That's stupid. If there are easier days and seasons when the sun is at your back, then let the sun shine on your back. But if a church and its leaders are committed to the gospel of God, adversity will come. When we studied Ephesians last year or earlier this year, I forget exactly, a letter about God's salvation plan and how his plan is worked out through local churches, Paul, the writer, reminds us where the true nature or seat of opposition is for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and rulers, the spiritual forces of evil. Now, just think of the logic of this. Churches. Think of churches emerging out of lockdown. Churches committed to the gospel of God. The gospel and the gospel alone that saves people from the wrath to come will be opposed by Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. Why? Because he hates God, he hates the people of God, and is determined that people will not be rescued from the wrath to come. 
His tactics are many. He blinds the minds of unbelievers to the truth. He is a father of lies, deluding people into thinking this world is all there is and God is a delusion. Why, when you turn on the news for yet another round of what we are hearing, why do people in their hearts not cry out for God? Because Satan blinds their minds. As the father of lies, he is the master of spin, half-truths, a gospel that sounds like the gospel but is not the gospel of God, a gospel that fools people into thinking they are safe when they're not. And if a church or a Christian leader or a youth group leader matters just as much for them, stands fast in speaking the true gospel of God and refutes alternatives that purport to be the gospel and are not, they will become a target for Satan. He is utterly evil, his power is evil, and his weapons are evil. We need to be real about that. It is what the Bible says. And as we emerge out of lockdown, as we pick up the baton, as we try our best to move forward as a church, Satan will be there to oppose the living churches in this country. He must be. Now, as I reflect on the last 10 years at Chalmers, there are many signs of gospel progress for which we thank God. It is his work, it is his doing. But there have been plenty of difficulties and adversity. And genuine, authentic Christian leadership lives always in that arena of tension, of constant struggle. Christian leadership, Christian church is exercised in the midst of much conflict. So how on earth does a leader, a church, an impact leader persevere in such adversity? We're back to what we said at the beginning. They do not go it alone. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christian leadership, shared leadership with others. That's why the Bible encourages plurality of leadership. Paul uses plurals all the way verses, all the way through chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Shared leadership makes all the difference. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Callum, Alan, Chris, Johnny, the other elders. Roger, Jay, me as full-time elders sharing responsibility. The staff team in a church, a global mission team. Slob groups. Jay leading a whole group of people teaching our children and young people that's how you sustain long-term ministry. A leader perseveres in adversity by not going it alone. And second, a leader at church perseveres in adversity because they have absolute confidence in the gospel. After what happened in Philippi, what made Paul and Silas dust themselves down and head straight up the road to Thessalonica with a fair idea that the same thing would happen there. What made them persevere in adversity? Their convictions about the gospel. They were absolutely convinced, unshakably convinced, of the urgent necessity and the power of the gospel. Nothing mattered more to them. Listen to one of the questions Callum will be asked. Are not zeal for the glory of God, love to the Lord Jesus, and a desire for the salvation of all people, so far as you know your own heart, your great motive and heart's desire to be set apart as an elder. In other words, what is the deepest desire in your life? That's what makes you go on. And third, a leader or a church perseveres in adversity 
because they have absolute confidence in God. These key words in verse 2, we had boldness in our God. That means supernatural strength, God-given boldness. It is the power of God that enables a gospel minister and a gospel church to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict and to go on declaring that gospel. In the last analysis, while Satan is powerful, God is more powerful. God will protect us. God will keep us. And the power of God in the gospel is greater than the power of Satan to oppose the gospel. And so we persevere in adversity. And as we emerge out of lockdown, with all the things that we like and desire perhaps stripped away from us, left with the essentials, we were never, ever, ever going to lose the ability to proclaim the gospel. We hope. And as we go through this new season as a church with another set of difficulties, the devil will do all that he can to hinder and to oppose and to disrupt. But bit by bit, sparklers teachers, little stars teachers, folks who run creche, Sunday club, youth church, CCY, impact, Sundays, small groups, Romans, bit by bit, people across this church leaders will arm themselves with the gospel of God, and the power of God will be at work. And so we persevere, always in adversity, or flip the coin, and so always in adversity, we always persevere. Thirdly, sincere motives. The ordination question I referred to a few moments ago asks a prospective elder what their motives are. And that's the third mark of authentic leadership. Paul commends sincere motives. That's verses 3 to 6. And the main point here is that the Christian leader entrusted with the gospel is a servant of God. Their motive, and Paul says this, is to please God and not people. Their motive is not to seek their own glory or position or status, but the glory of God. Now, don't confuse this with a Christian leader that says their motive is pleasing God, but actually it's not. That can often be a disguise or a mask for doing things that you want. With a Christian leader who is rightly called and set apart by God to speak the Word of God and the Gospel, whether people receive it with gladness or not, a Christian leader of whatever sort, an elder, a small group leader, a CCY leader, who is concerned to be thought well of, some of you guys are here tonight from CCY. Your leaders, whatever else they will do, will tell you the truth. That's worth, it's worth it a thousand times over. Now, hopefully, you guys in CCY and small groups across the church and so on and so forth, will support and stand with them and thank your leaders for their commitment to the Word of God and the Gospel of God. But that will not always be the case in a church. Our motivation must always, therefore, be to please God. It is God who tests our hearts. It is God to whom we are answerable. And what does it look like when a leader's motivations are sincere? They speak the truth. They are godly. They are transparent. There is no flattery. They don't ask for stuff. They don't look for praise. They don't seek a reputation. They don't make demands of the people they serve. And that spills over into verses 7 to 9, the fourth mark of authentic leadership, selfless, sacrificial, tender, loving, 
here. What a contrast between this fearless proclamation of the gospel of God and verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, sisters, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden uh, to you. Now, this morning on Zoom, uh, somebody in the church asked a couple, and um, they'd had a new baby. It's a slightly risky comment they made. He said, you both look knackered. Why? Because they've been up all night with their kid. Now, they'll get to sleep training. Is that not what a parent does? Many of you are parents. What, what do you do for your kids? You do anything. They're absolutely committed to them. They love them. They provide for their needs. The picture here is of a mother feeding her children. When their child is ill, a parent sits up with them. When the child is upset, they comfort them. They are tender with them. This is not sentimental. It is affectionate. It is all-consuming. Share our lives, not just the gospel. Why? Because these Christians in Thessalonica were very dear to them. Callum and Christine, I know that people in your small group have become very dear to you and you to them. They tell me that. You tell me that. That's utterly authentic. So when you speak the truth to them, they know you love them. It needs wisdom, of course. It doesn't mean to say you have to do everything or be available all the time but they need to know you love them. Well, that's not right. You need to love them, and then they will know. Christian leadership is a life of selfless, sacrificial, tending, loving care for others. Such selfless sacrifice needs to be sustainable. It sits always alongside other responsibilities, not least to our families. But let's not be too fast or hasty to caveat or to qualify the example, the life, and the teaching of the Apostle Paul to say he got it wrong. The final mark of authentic leadership, a concern for godliness, verses 10 to 12. The Christian leader, the elder, the Sunday club teacher, the slob group leader, committed to living a godly life. Godliness renders the leader useful to God. Godliness renders the leader constantly thanking God for his fruitfulness. Godliness renders the leader's perseverance when things do not go well, and they're in a commitment to exhort others to live a godly life. The authentic marks of leadership in a church, speaking the gospel, persevering in adversity, sincere motives, selfless, sacrificial, tender, loving care, and a concern for godliness. Now, as we finish, I think the most challenging phrase in the passage is Paul's repeated transparent appeal to them, you know, you know I am authentic. So look at verse 1. For you yourselves know that our coming to you is not in vain. Verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, 
we had boldness. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know. Verse 9, for you remember our labor and toil. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, for you know. You know we are authentic. There's a bold statement from a leader. You know whether we are authentic or not. That is challenging. But the last word is something even more challenging, yet wonderfully comforting. That God knows that what matters most is that God knows. And the Christian leader, whatever role they have in a church, has always got to have an upward glance to God. The CCY leader coming to church has an upward glance in their heart to God. God knows. So I will tell them the real, true gospel of God. I'll worry for them. If they haven't yet come to believe or understand it. Every decision an elder takes in a church, God knows. God is witness, verse 5. Verse 10, you are witnesses. But God also. Whenever the apostles describe authentic church or authentic leadership, it is extraordinarily demanding, but wonderfully, wonderfully inviting. It is leadership like the world just does not have. And in a church like Chalmers, and let me encourage you in this, it's all over the church. Plural leadership is a far, far, far healthier church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these very practical words from the apostle reflected in this church in Thessalonica. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be encouraged where they are evident here in the are, but that it would be so increasingly in our lives individually and corporately for Jesus' sake. Amen.